particular interesting thing about me when I get into something, I kind of get into it like a lot. Um, so my current obsession is pickleball. And uh, one of the great things about pickleball is it seems so soft and gentle until somebody drills you with the ball. So one particular player who's not in this room, his name is Michael. Uh, he's abandoned us for the youth. He's tall and he's long and he loves to drill the ball at my body. And so now, every week, I just have to hit him first to let him know, don't come at me or I'm going to come at you. Because if there's one thing I know Jesus said, it's strike first. <laughs> Wait, that, I think that's from Cobra Kai. Um, all right, let's pray and uh, get, in, get, back into the, um, get back into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for uh, what a glorious day that you have blessed us with. And so we savor the gift of each day, and certainly some days seem to be sweeter than others. And so we thank you for each day, and doubly thank you for the sweeter days. And so thank you for today and the chance to be here as we continue to unpack uh, this Jesus manifesto on how we are to live as those who identify as his people or followers of him. So be with us tonight. Holy Spirit, illuminate uh, our minds, enliven our hearts, loosen our lips as we seek to discuss uh, with each other this text before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so first thing I want to say is... Um, Especially to those who are tuning in online, if it sounds like I'm very excited, it's probably because I am. <laughs> um, but sometimes the translation through the, your speakers at home can maybe magnify the excitement level. Uh, the other thing I want to say is... Um, I can... Uh, I've said this before, I can be overly critical. <laughs> and so, uh, as we walk through these texts, I'm, in essence, fighting against my default mode, which is uh, hypercriticalness, which has been so deeply ingrained in me that I try to overcome it. Um, and so, I, I'm not... My goal and intent is not for us to leave here and feel as if we are failing as followers of Jesus Christ. So um, I'm really trying to regulate my tone to, as to not communicate. Um, all y'all here are terrible Christians, and if you just lived better, God would be happier with you. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. And certainly, I struggle to live out these things, and oftentimes I do it with my kids. When I see them doing something that I know I have somehow passed on to them, either through uh, my biology or through my habits, 
I become even more critical of that because I see it in myself and I don't want them to, in essence, repeat uh, these things. So, as we discuss these things, I'm not saying, again, I have this all figured out and I live this out perfectly and if you were just better Christians, you too would do these things. Um, oftentimes I'm speaking directly to myself. So, I want to remind us where we are at. You're like, yeah, we're in Matthew. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, uh, that is true. But I want us to go back in our minds or in our pages, because it's not that far back, and remember when Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, that he starts with the Beatitudes. And so he's making this declaration of those who embrace and embody these things will experience uh, these results. And so he kind of gives us this outline through the Beatitudes, and now he's giving us like specific examples of how to live into those things in specific circumstances. So because we've, we've chosen to bro- break it up uh, in, in such small parts, uh, we can forget and we can pull out tonight as if it's existing in this nebulous vacuum uh, and miss the fact that it wasn't that long ago that Jesus was saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who will be uh, reviled for my name's sake. Okay, so we, we really want to have those words continuing to echo uh, in our minds as we hear these current words. Uh, so, I, you know, I would encourage you uh, it doesn't take long to go back each week as we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount and maybe just give it a quick listen on your way here or give it a quick read uh, just to kind of re-engage your brain around where are we at within uh, this teaching of Jesus. So we are in this, these kind of, uh, you've heard it said, uh, I have, uh, but I say, uh, statements. So we're in verse uh, 38 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Uh, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them uh, two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your Uh, Brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, Jesus is giving us this formula of the, you have heard that it was said, uh, and I am going to make a different statement about that. Now this, you have heard it said, he goes way back, like old school back, even further back than the Old Testament, which many of us think, is that possible? Yes, there were texts that were written before the Old Testament, in particular Hammurabi's Law Code, uh, which sounds like an episode from the Rings of Power. It's not. Uh, there was this saying of, of how justice is to be uh, enforced within the ancient Near Eastern world. Now, when we first look at this, we think, well, that seems kind of harsh. And yet, what we don't realize is that what was happening was actually harsher than the eye for the eye. So that if somebody who was in power felt that they were wronged, they would inflict even more punishment on the person than an equal or equivalent punishment. So when we hear the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth, this is an ancient phrase, and it was a way to make sure that the justice that was being uh, doled out was an equivalent justice. So harm for harm, not, you know, you cut me off in traffic, I firebomb your car. You know, that like sort of, you get the idea. So Jesus is taking that phrase that they all would have known, and he completely upends it. <laughs> he says, do not resist the one who is evil, and then he goes into these three categories. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone sues you uh, to take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, one thing that we want to be aware of in, in particular is how do we in essence, come to text that is so familiar to us with an open and receptive mind to understand maybe afresh. Because so many of these texts, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, we're like, yeah, yeah, the whole turn the other cheek, I get it. So then how do we ask ourselves, but do we actually get it? How do we create space in our own selves to say, maybe I haven't gotten it right, or maybe I uh, have interpreted slightly wrongly because of the inherited culture in which I have found myself. So as I mentioned last week, um, there was this uh, CPT conference that I wasn't at, but I was watching online, and Mark Knoll, who wrote The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind 25 years ago, he is quoting from George Marsden, who is a historian of uh, American Christianity and culture. And, wow, that was, that was amazing. <laughs> All creatures of our God and King lift up their voices, even in this room. Uh, and George Marsden says this. He says, evangelicalism is weak because being market-driven it cannot challenge most tribal prejudices 
and even reinforce those when plausible to do so. So, part of what we need to do when we're coming to this text is we ask ourselves a particular question. Because all of us uh, are inundated with information through which we create what would be, we would understand as our view of the world or our worldview. So our worldview is shaped by the culture which we've inherited, the uh, culture in which we have bathed ourselves in. Think, um, if you have the other white meat, not much flavor. It's like blank canvas, right? But if I take said other white meat and I were to immerse it in a delicious soy honey ginger glaze marinade, then that piece of flesh would absorb the environment which it finds itself. And then you, you obviously cook it to perfection, and then it tastes like whatever it bathed in. Are you following this analogy? Okay. So, we all marinate in various environments. So, when we come to a text, we have to ask ourselves, am I going to respond via the, ba the bath that I'm living in and absorbing, or am I going to come to the text through the Holy Spirit and seek to understand what the Spirit is calling me to? And if those two things are in conflict with one another, do I make a decision to accept the bathwater that my world is, the marinade, or do I seek to go with a better option, which is the call of Jesus Christ on my life? So when we hear these words, there are certain things that our current climate tells us that are opposite to this. So when Jesus says, if someone strikes you, you shall strike them back. Except he doesn't say that. And so then when we encounter a particular voice from maybe even like who we would deem as our team saying, yeah, yeah, but we're, we don't need to listen to that anymore because Jesus didn't really mean that. Or well, he says, turn the cheek. I only have two cheeks and I've turned both of them, so now it's time to fight back. <laughs> Which, <laughs> that's about as close to an amen as, <laughs> as I'm going to get, I think, from you. <laughs> So, so we, be, we are faced with, do we retain our tribal allegiance in this world, or do we retain our commitment to Jesus Christ based on the words that he is instructing us? This teaching of Christ is the opposite of the world. It is the direct opposite. 
It is, in fact, the direct opposite of our human nature. Growing up with two older brothers, you get punched regularly. And so the only response is to punch them back. When your brother has you pinned on the floor, you don't just lay there and quote from the famous John Belushi movie. You're just like, yes, thank you. This is so much fun. I love it when you beat me into a pulp. Our natural tendency is to respond with an equivalent force. Is it not? Somebody cuts us off. The immediate response is not, wow, God be with them because they are in a hurry. Bless them wherever they may be going. It's, oh, these babies, these horses need to eat. Let's go so that I can come up next to you and say, excuse me, did you see me? Yeah. Now let me cut you off to pay you back. So the challenge becomes, Jesus is calling us to a radically different way of life. Do we want to live into that? And again, if we want to go hard on certain things, then we have to go equivalently hard on other things that Jesus is telling us. And spoiler alert, when he says in the future, take the log out of your own eye, <laughs> he, this is one of those instances. When somebody takes something from us, we often aren't, oh, what else do you need? Last week, we're, or last week, last year, we're in Atlanta, and we go out for dinner, And we come back out and we see this poor girl whose car has been broken into and we think, I'm so glad that's not us. I mean, is there any way we can help you? And then we look and our vehicle had been broken into and my son's backpack had been stolen and my Nalgene with all of my wonderful stickers, gone! I guess they needed a backpack. When someone takes something from us, do we offer them something more valuable? Because that's this imagery. This inner coat and outer coat is the imagery. Or is it the case that we want to get even? Because Getting even is nowhere in the Bible. And so Jesus is calling those who desire to be identified as followers of him to a completely different metric and standard of living. So that when somebody does something to us, we don't then seek to do the same thing back to them. And in fact, when somebody takes advantage of us, which is this imagery of going the one mile, we go even further. Again, completely counterintuitive to how our human brains function. 
Because our formation, we spend far more time bathing in a worldly marinade than we do in a biblical marinade. And so we look and act and smell and sound and taste much more like the world than we do of Christ. And so the question becomes, what do we do about that? And what we don't do is we, we can't interpret this text in ways that it was never intended to be interpreted. Because we can easily take this text and we can say, well, see, God wants us to just allow the world to walk all over us, allow the world to beat us up, to, to abuse us. If we find ourselves, again, as we talked about last week, in an abusive relationship, Jesus says we just have to sit there and take it. That's not what he's saying. And and anyone who tries to convince you that if you are in an abusive relationship that Jesus desires for you to retain in that, keep yourself in that abusive relationship, is not reading their Bible well. Because we know that that is not who Jesus is. Because Jesus gets down into the dirt with the woman who's about to be killed and puts himself in harm's way and says, go ahead. Those of you who don't have sin, you're welcome to stone her. And so Jesus advocates for those who are in a place of vulnerability. So what is he doing here? Well, again, if we understand contextually where we're at, they're about to go out and do this thing called the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he's giving them instruction and playbook, a playbook of how they are to live as they enter into this world and they encounter specific situations. If we find ourselves in a place of abuse, we don't stay in that place. So in this instance, it is, it is a specific instance. I encounter somebody who who slaps me across the face, insults me, physically assaults me, I don't retaliate, that doesn't follow that I stay in that situation. It doesn't mean if somebody takes something from me, I let them just continue to take all the things that I have. It means in this instance, if somebody is taking something from me, I allow them to have it. And we immediately think, what do we want to say to Jesus? Or or maybe we want to say this to Matthew. We said it last week.
It's, it's not fair. What we want to ask, is this hyperbole? We wanted to ask it last week when we were gar- carving out our eyes, right? Wearing our eye patches. Is it the case that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole? Certainly he couldn't mean that if somebody comes up to me and says, I'm stealing your car, that I let them have my car. Like, well, Eric, in your case, it'd probably be an upgrade for you to walk. I have a new vehicle. It's that we don't personally retaliate. The world says fight back. Jesus says don't retaliate. If you are to be identified as a follower of mine, and you are to experience persecution on my behalf, hashtag blessed, in the first century sense of it, how it actually means, blessed are those who experience these things. And only if he would just stop there. Like, let's just just skip to the Lord's Prayer. No, he doubles down and he says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which many people contest. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say hate your enemy. So, What's he doing here? Well, what he's doing is saying, I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. No! That's a hard no. (laughs) Because the word he uses here for love is unconditional desire for the well-being of another person. And so when we bathe ourselves and marinate in the tribal stew that is American culture, and then we read scripture, we either have to reject the stew or reject scripture. Because no one today that exists in modern culture says, love those who are not you. We can't wait till next Tuesday so we can be done with all of these election ads, right? And, And what are they? So many of them are like, I don't know what I stand for, but that person is going to take you to hell. You're right. I must hate that person and reject them. Which is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we are to unconditionally seek the flourishing and well-being of all people. So why is it the case that we have fallen prey to being infected by tribalism and partisanship and infighting around culturally constructed things that are not the gospel. 
Now, we talked, we've talked about this before. You know, I grew up in Yankton, South Dakota, home of the Bucks and the Gazelles. If you're from Brandon Valley or Watertown or Mitchell, depending on the sport, you were my enemy. I did not like you. And even when I went to USF and, and there were two guys that lived on my floor from Watertown, we were on the same, literally the same football team. I said, I still don't like you <laughs> because you're from the enemy. Or imagine a Vikings fan and a Packers fan being joined in holy matrimony. How does that even work? Well, this year it works great because the Packers are terrible. And yet the rhetoric and the vitriol that we not only accept but perpetuate because that's how we've been trained is not of Jesus Christ. It is not of Jesus Christ. And so we either need to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and the call of what it means to be a disciple, or we need to reject the cultural mandates that we are ingesting on a regular basis. Because the two of them cannot coexist. Because loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us doesn't fit. It does not fit within the cultural stew that, that we allow ourselves to bathe in. Yes. So why did, what do we say to those people who have gone off to war and fought for our country? That's the question? So, again, we, we cannot take a text that is talking about individual interpersonal relationships and extrapolate it to a national viewpoint. Well, a, we would need to go to different texts to unpack what that looks like for a nationalistic agenda. Did God waged war. That was the statement you made. I was instructed last week, I have to repeat whatever anyone says verbatim so the person at home can hear verbatim. Yes, God did wage war regularly. What does Jesus say about war? Well, that's part of part of what we can't do is we can't we can't pluck texts that aren't meant for what the question we're trying to answer and use it in a way 
I think I said that's actually of Satan. (laughs) I said it's satanic to use scripture inappropriately. So the question becomes, what do we do uh, with a whole bunch of the Old Testament about war and aggression and all these things? Well, we balance it with when Jesus says, I did not come with a sword. And we're going to get to that in the future. And so this becomes more on a micro scale of interpersonal relationships and how do I treat those who I have somehow classified as my enemy? How do I look at other people in the world? Do I see them as opposition to me or do I see them as as somebody that I should love and seek their flourishing? And Jesus is saying, we are to seek, if you are to follow after me, Rather than just loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor is easy. It's like the, when we talk about the, the, the marriage thing or the adultery thing and the lust thing, it's like not having an affair is the low bar on marriage. Not lusting after another female is the high bar of marriage. Loving your neighbor, that's the easy part. <laughs> Maybe. Because he goes on to say, and he, and he makes it this, we miss it. It's just this slanderous comment. Even the Gentiles do that. So like, even the lowest of low people are willing to love their neighbor. So Jesus is calling those who will be his followers to a radical reimagining of what it means to be a human being. And we'll just jump forward slightly. Why is that? Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when we talk about this concept of perfection, the word that he is using is telos. So telos is the purpose for which something is created. So when we live into our telos, when we live into our perfection, this is what it looks like. It looks like all these things that he's just been talking about. It looks like loving your enemy, praying for those who seek to do you harm. It looks like not seeking personal retribution. And so we, as human beings, are created in the image of God to live towards a purpose. And if we are followers of Christ, we live fully into that by doing these things. The reality is, how often do we not do that? How often do we choose to, and sometimes it's, we don't even choose. We feel like we don't even choose it. And so then we, what do we say, Russ? The devil made me do it. Like when we just reactionary act, we're like, well, the devil. How about the sin nature that resides in me just happened? And so he is creating this picture for those who are to follow after him to love unconditionally the people they encounter in the world, those that are close 
those that are far off, those that seek their benefit, those that seek their demise. And who is he saying this to? What is happening at this time in Jerusalem? What is happening to the Jewish nation? Rome is oppressing them. Rome is persecuting and killing and has the thumb of Caesar on the Jews. So he's saying to the Jewish people, you need to love the Romans and pray for them. That is beyond revolutionary. I mean, we write this text, Matthew writes this text to the Ukraine Christians and says, love Vladimir Putin and pray for the Russians that are seeking to invade and kill you. Uh, how about no? So again, we have, this, we have this budding together of what it means to live in this world and to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. The two things don't fit together. And so as we encounter life as a disciple of Christ, we're just like... I mean, do you find yourself where you're like, I, I actually don't really want to, today, I'm just going to take a pass. <laughs> like, I'm just going to take a non-Jesus day. Like, I'm just going to not do it. Because we don't want to live up to the standard that Christ has called us to And that is where the grace of Jesus Christ is fresh and new every morning. Every opportunity that we get to have, we get to, we, we get to live into what this looks like. And we get so wound up. We just got to go out and share the gospel. Got to tell these people about the sin in their lives. We got to tell them to accept Jesus Christ and they'll make it to heaven. That is an excuse for not embodying the call of Jesus Christ. How many people have looked at the body of Christ in the past fill in the blank? Four, six, 40, fill in the blank, years, and said, I want nothing to do with them because this is how they treat people. So when we treat people a certain way, what we're saying is we do not believe that Jesus Christ was serious when he said these words. What good is articulating the the four spiritual laws, if we are not living out the call of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's nonsense. It is literally nonsense. 
And it's interesting because Jesus says, you are to do what God does. God gives good to the good and to the evil. He makes the sun rise on those who are deemed good and those who are deemed evil. God is an equal opportunity blesser. So if we are to be children of God, then we too are to be equal opportunity blessers of those in this world. And I wish that we just had a scrolling excuse computer at the top. (laughs) Yeah, but this and this and this. I've got about 75 of my own. So you'll just have to start at number 76 to add yours. And then he goes on as if, like, okay, now we're out of the, you've heard it said, and now it just gets easier. (laughs) Except he starts this whole new category. And he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. A large declarative statement. Now he's going to go and talk about some very specific things. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. My aunt and uncle were here last Thursday and Friday, and of course, my uh, my uncle was a pastor at a a small church, Uh, and so they're like, well, we want to come see your church. And of course, they're like, Oh, okay. Wow. Wow. You ever have that experience? People are like, where do you go to church? You like live in Niswa. They're like, okay, okay. I see you, king. Rolling heavy in the, the whole Jesus thing. Timberwood Church is exceedingly generous. Obviously. We wouldn't have the grounds and the facility that we have without the generosity of those who have come before and that who are here today. So this is not a this isn't about generosity, internal generosity. Jesus' instruction here, first of all, it's given that people are giving to the needy. The the Israelites were instructed. The Old Testament is far more about caring for the orphan, the widow, the needy, the physically needy, than, than almost anything else. So that is implied. So, to give to the needy is not a new biblical concept. What I often wonder, though, is 
how have we translated this text to give to the church? Because that's not what it says. It says to give to those who are physically in need of dollars and cents and resources. That those who are to be followers of Jesus Christ are to give financially, physically, to those who don't have the things that they need and to do it in such a way that, that oftentimes nobody even knows it's happening. And he gives this, really it's a ludicrous statement, as one commentator points out. You would literally have to have a frontal lobotomy to make this work. (laughs) Which Jesus would have known nothing about what a frontal lobotomy would do so that you wouldn't know what your right hand or your left hand is doing, but that's neither here nor there. I often wonder and ask myself when we come across these passages how we get this wrong and we, we place ourselves, our body, this body, in the category of needy when we are anything but. <laughs> and... Trust me, I am well aware of the grand irony of the statements that I'm making. I wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for the generosity of this body. So when I come to a text like this, we really have to wrestle with how far are we living into this? And next week, I'm sleeping out on Monday night for the homeless shelter, and and we can convince ourselves that the needs don't exist in the Brainerd Lakes area, except they do. And so, how, how do we take this call of Christ as seriously as we do whether or not somebody chooses to leave a hostile and abusive marriage. How do we handle this passage compared to other passages in the Sermon on the Mount? And why do we choose to hone in and bear down on certain things versus other things? When Jesus puts them on par with one another. Yes. Do I think that we have been culturally conditioned to under believe that we give our tithe to the church, and then the church takes care of the needy? Is that what you said? Especially here in this building?
Right. So I give to the church, and I expect the church to take care of the needy. That's okay. So the second, the second, so the second question being, we have created a, a culture of abdication of responsibility as long as I contribute X number of dollars. Well, yeah, that's what X would represent, any number you choose. Right, Russ? I haven't taught algebra in a while, but X can stand for any rational number. What? Or 10. Or 10. Um, I don't know. Because I don't know where, first of all, I don't know how much people give to Timberwood Church. Uh, so, I think that part of it is a cultural reality. People, when they are in need, they go to churches because churches have, especially pietistic churches, started social services way back in the day. The pietistic movement started schools, started hospitals, the church was the vehicle to care for the poor. So that is a carryover. So when somebody's in need, they think, if I go to a church building, I will receive resources. I am absolutely not going to conjecture what, what's on someone's mind around why they choose to give the dollars they give to where they give it and why they choose to make decisions that they do based after they've given the dollars they've given. I myriad of options. Um, we have been culturally infected around dollars and cents in the church as repulsive for again myriad of reasons. So. Uh, again, I don't know the answer to your question, which I know is not shocking, <laughs> yet still devastatingly disappointing. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So what I do know is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you're going to be a follower of mine, your decisions to give resources to those in need is not about what you gain in the present. It's about 
responding to the call of God on your li- in your life. And don't make a big deal of it. So the ecclesiastical or the church conversation around is this a cultural thing, not only in North America, not only in Minnesota, not only in Nisswa, but in, at Timberwood? As I stated to begin with, and I know we're over time, I, this is, I feel like I'm walking across some hot coals, and until I get to the end, I want to stay focused. <laughs> Timberwood Church, the, the people that have been here and that are here are exceedingly generous, period. Individuals that live in the Brainerd Lakes area are exceedingly generous. The dollars that are raised are mind-boggling in this area. This isn't about a dollar amount. This is about a mentality. So, Jesus is calling us to physically care for the needs of others. And if the church is going to ignore the needs that exist and, again, abdicate the call of Jesus Christ to outside sources, then, again, we need to reevaluate how we identify as followers of Jesus Christ. That's where I'm going to end now. I would love to have, I mean, these are hour long, hours of conversations that we could have, and I'm, I'd love to have these, and I'd love to be pressed on them and to bounce ideas off. Um, but now I want to give you guys an opportunity to go uh, to your discussion groups and, and discuss.